from the Motown records I wore out on the South Side to the Who Run the World songs that fueled me through this last decade. Music has always helped me tell my story. And I know that's true for everybody here. Music helps us share ourselves. Music shows us that all of it matters. Every story within every voice, every note within every song. I'm Garrett McQueen. And I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast that celebrates equitable diversity. What do you think about that? What does equitable diversity mean to you, Scott, as opposed to just regular old diversity? Um, freedom for everybody. <laughs> um, I don't, um, I guess no one particular race, religion, or creed getting more in uh, time in the spotlight than another. Right. That are, that are all marginalized. When I think about equitable diversity. I oh, so think, I was right? I, I think that's one, one okay. way to look at it. When I think about equitable diversity, I think about diversity that serves the specific intersections and the specific challenges of black folk, for example, we're going to get into that in the triloquy today. There's a lot to talk about in the fourth movement when it comes to Sphinx, when it comes to some stuff happening in the bassoon world. Scott, can you imagine in the bassoon world specifically, there are issues for black players, uh, you know, much less the larger scheme. Damn. Wow. What, that's what all I have to say is damn. <laughs> it's not funny, but you know, that, that's that's why we're here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the returning listeners. If this is your first time, thank you so much for joining us. Strap in. This is a podcast that um, celebrates a lot of things. I've been, I've been doing a lot of work on the mission statement of Triloquy on the website, and mm-hmm. I think where I am right now is um, affirming the classic aspects of of music from uh, all cultures, you know. So if you're a new listener, this is what this is. We're going to talk about some classical as you may define it, classical as we define it, and everything in between. So thank you so much for joining us. This opus of Triloquy is made possible in part by the Peabody Institute of the John Hopkins University. The Peabody Institute will convene arts industry leaders on Wednesday, February 10th for the next normal arts innovation and resilience in a post-COVID world. This free online symposium will explore the path forward for artists and organizations and the long-term landscape for the performing arts. What does the future look like? Will audiences come back? How will the experiences of arts have changed after COVID? Facing these and other pressures, how will performing artists and institutions adapt? Artists, educators, administrators, and others throughout the industry are encouraged to attend this event. It runs from 1045 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern. For more information and to register, visit peabody.jhu.edu slash next normal. Scott, I think that's a really important question for folks to ask. What Will the future look like? Will audiences come back? It's a huge question. We've kind of figured out how to make virtual performances and virtual conferences and things. But when we can go back into the concert hall, are they going to crowd it? I'm, it's, I feel like it's going to be a long time with everything they're talking about COVID. As we're recording this today, there's a, um, the remix to COVID is in Minnesota right. now specifically. So Someone flying from Brazil. Brazil. Like, what are y'all doing traveling in the middle of the, what did we say, the Ponderosa? In the, right, in the Ponderosa. <laughs> um, but 
but yeah, I don't even know if I'm ready to go pack. I'm going to be ready to pack a movie theater anytime soon, much less go to an orchestra anyway. So I think it's going to be a great um, conversation. Shout out to everybody at the Peabody Institute. Um, you can find information uh, more on that again on their website and also on the Triloquy website. There is a button for you there. We have a very special guest today, Scott. Her name is Maria Ellis, and she's changing radio. It is so exciting. Can you imagine when you started a, it wouldn't have been Bach and Beyonce when you started, but Bach and, Bach and the Beatles. Or or oh, like Bach and Beastie Boys. Yeah, could you imagine that being a thing on classical radio? No, not well, not from back in my day. No. Well, it is now. We're going to talk about that. How Maria um, got into music um, in a sort of uh, roundabout way. We talk about being a, an untraditional student um, and what gets her into uh, the radio uh, programming that she likes to do and the inspirations of it. So, looking forward to that, Scott. I spent a lot of time with a lot of music this week. We're not going to talk about everything that I spent time with, but. We uh, we have some Mozart to talk about because his birthday is coming up. We'll honor him uh, just a little bit. Um, I have some some things from the film world. What kind of uh, music are you going to bring in today? Black Swans. It's a release called uh, First Recordings of Black Classical Music Performers. Came out about a year, year and a half ago, something like that. And I'll I'll get into why. I went in that direction in the second movement. Okay. Uh, today's downbeat was brought to you by Michelle Obama, the winner of this year's inauguration. She looked beautiful. <laughs> That's true. She slayed the kids. Plum. We're, we're going to... Oh, plum. Yes. What a beautiful, like, new year color, new age color. It was just oh. right. It oh. was just right is we're, the only word that i can think of well we're gonna stay in here in the first movie we're gonna stay in michelle obama mm -hmm. um but anyway that's uh, some of the stuff we have planned so let's jump in can you feel the brand new day scott well, actually, that, that song is coming up in this opus, but can you feel the brand new day? When you sat down and uh, got to watch the inauguration, did it feel fresh to you? Did it feel like a restart? A little bit. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, now I have to check myself and think about the way other people might be mm -hmm. watching this at the same time. And I can safely say that this is the first inauguration where I've done that. Yep. So some I'm, growth there. I'm going to give this whole inauguration a sharp because everything that I have, oh, I guess with the exception of one thing, um, every, most of the things I have here we're going to talk about with the inauguration are great. I mean, beautiful performances, um, beautiful wardrobes. I have no idea um, how J-Lo sounded, um, but she looked beautiful. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's start with Amanda Gorman. So... The youngest poet laureate ever. I have her bio pulled up right here. Amanda S.C. Gorman, born in 1998. You remember 1998? I do. She doesn't. I do. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to climb the ranks... Wow, like the see, I, you you often speak to maybe off the mics, having to you know go faster and and try to catch up when it comes to younger content and new media. Yeah, if we have folks out here like Amanda getting to the White House at age twenty two, I need to get out the way. Right, you know? <laughs> right. I, I'm not running fast enough. Just hold the door. Yeah, but you think of uh, the poem that she presented. Well. This is going to feed into the second movement with the music as well. But right now, I have so many different emotions that are really close to the surface mm -hmm. that uh, I have to do. I have to watch things like the inauguration in bits, yeah, because it's just an emotional assault. 
You know, so I don't know as far as a reset, if it felt like a reset in as much as it just felt like I could exhale. You know, the, I just felt a little bit of ease. And I know that we have protests yep. that are, yep. you know, continuing to apply the pressure on this administration, and that needs to happen, you know, because for a lot of folks, it doesn't, the, the boot that is on them is the same. And I am folks. I'm, I'm still waiting for this stimulus. Right. We talk about unity, and this is not the politics podcast, but we talk about unity, and they're always talking about bringing folks together. How uniting would it have been for day one executive order, give us our money? Mm. Who's going to be mad? Who's going to be upset? Probably some Republicans, right? Because uh, now that the power has changed hands, they're going to be very concerned about fiscal issues. Let me uh, let me clarify who playing the home game would have been, <laughs> would have been upset. <laughs> Yeah. So that's what I that's what I say. Anyway, shout out to um, Amanda Gorman. Musically, uh, closer to you know so-called classical music, Western classical. I always appreciate hearing the Marine Band. It's one thing to hear the marches that all of us band kids learned in school. There's a little thread on Facebook. Uh, some of us were talking about getting out our flutes and piccolos and and playing along. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I wanted to make sure that I highlighted. A, I love that they had winds and brass on different sides of the stage. I don't know if you saw me commenting on that on Twitter, but yeah. when you're playing in a wind ensemble, especially uh, even in an orchestra, there are some days when that headache is hitting and you have a trumpet player right, right behind, behind you. you. Probably, as I said on Twitter, usually playing a little sharp. <laughs> so I, I, I appreciate it seeing... Um, the separate but equal stagings of the woodwinds and brass, because I can sure. speak to that. Sure. But also, what I think is important, oh, and there's a quick correction, shout out to Evan. Evan said that uh, the Marine Band people don't go through BT. If you make it into the Marine Band, they're like, just come over here. Yeah, we got you. We got you. <laughs> so if anybody gets close, we'll so shoot So shout out we'll to them, them not being able to fight if uh, if the if the protests had got through, so mm. whatever. Anyway, the Marine Band is so much more than what most folks see or experience, especially on inauguration, um, inauguration on television and things. In my uh, musical training, especially in undergrad, um, wind repertoire was a huge part of, of my training. Mm-hmm. And when you go back and listen to some of the staple recordings of these pieces, and I'm, I'm thinking of composers like Michael Gandolfi, sure. you know, Christopher Theophanidis, all, all of these contemporary composers who, who are digging into band music. Um, the Marine Band um, and all of the service bands uh, create these recordings. And I, uh, just thinking about the Marine Band, seeing them on TV, I went into my phone to see, okay, well, what Marine Band recordings have I bought in, in recent years or in the past? And I found a an album uh, featuring the Marine Band called The Family Album. It has all sorts of really uh, cool wind ensemble pieces from different aesthetics. Um, all the band people out there might remember the piece of music called Vientos y Tangos. I'll, I'll, after we cut off the mic, so I'll let you uh, hear a little bit of that. It's a really okay. spicy wind band piece. Um, but the one I wanted to um, share as we continue to uh, check our accidentals here, and as I shout out the Marine Band is a piece by a composer named Scott Linthroth. It's called Spin Cycle. What do you think of the, <laughs> the phrase spin cycle when it comes to the news and politics and, and this transition of power? Everybody's spinning, man. Mm-hmm. Look at every single pundit, every single anchor, anybody who's being interviewed. They're a freaking spin doctor trying to 
twist like a pretzel to make whatever they're saying match up with whatever they've already i'm going down a rabbit hole because i didn't mean to go down but <laughs> no, yeah. I, was, I was letting you go <laughs> it's clever it's clever spin cycle anyway, I like yeah it. a piece of music by scott linthroff uh, this recording of course features the uh, marine band shout out to y'all thank you for your service not only to the country but to music and to music education i i bet some of those brass players could probably throw down i wouldn't tangle with a marine trombone player oh yeah no <laughs> Let's listen to a little let's listen to it for a little bit here. talk about the trombone players but this is the thing and you're and you you will laugh but in my marching band days you were see you almost had me cussing you were doing the wrong thing if you mess with some of the woodwind sections <laughs> maybe the piccolo section really? wasn't you know I, there, there were some men in, in the piccolo section when i was marching and some that could fight but the ones you didn't mix with were the clarinets if you if you had some beef with the clarinets you had some beef really okay? why is that <laughs> i don't know it's just strong in number there are always so many of them when you think about <laughs> when you think about an orchestra uh, you think about you know there's first and second violin so like the predominant thing you're seeing is violin players right. in a wind ensemble and in many uh in many cases it's clarinets that's that's sort of the meat of the woodwind mm. section anyway the the band breakdown here uh, by the way that piece of music spin cycle it was commissioned um uh in Michigan for the University of Michigan Symphony Band. That made me think about somebody over there is a billionaire right now. Did you see that? Well, after the taxes, they'll have like $550 million. Oh, oh excuse me. Yeah, I mean, just a pauper's, <laughs> a pauper's wage. Yeah, so I, you know, I, when you figure all the taxes, you know, it's not even worth going to buy a ticket. Don't let me, listen. <laughs> Listen, don't let me get the money. Uh-huh. As as Pepper, <laughs> shout out to everyone who knows the movie uh, Paris is Burning. I'm going to quote Pepper LaBeja. If I had the dollars, it'd be too much for the world. Mm. <laughs> and that's the truth. The Triloquy Foundation. Oh, my gosh. The initiative, Scott, that we will be giving money to. The problems we will cause for some of y'all. Anyway, I'm going to buy my tickets uh, this week. We'll see what happens. <laughs> for a paltry 20 mil. Um, so continuing with the Sharps. Th this is an inauguration first movement, just so y'all know. So um, continuing with the Sharps, Scott, the Obamas. That was a heavy-duty Sharp. This is the thing. So I was watching the inauguration and as the doors opened and the Obamas came walking through, Michelle and the plum looking mm -hmm. like she was ready for anything. And with the mask made it even more fierce. I saw a picture of somebody put a lightsaber in her hand. That was dope. <laughs> it just felt like the adults were home. It like did. mom and dad are, were home, you know, finally after four years. I mean, even I, though they're not, obviously we're not saying I know that in charge, but I know a lot of people don't like the Obamas for their politics, but Really, you just have to look at the uh, how long they've been together. No scandals. Listen, uh, two uh, beautiful daughters, and you know there there's some dignity there and the integrity. swag of it. On top of all yeah, of that, yeah. on top of being at their tip top, they're not corny. My president can sing. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. They're not corny. Ooh, 
I'm saying, like I said in the announcements, Michelle Obama won the inauguration. And when I think about, when you think about, first, there have been some incredible first ladies. That so you know, shout out, shout out to all the good first ladies. I don't know everybody's name and everybody's legacy, but you know, shout out to y'all. I think in the grand scheme of things, when you see Michelle Obama. And like the work she did with trying to get the kids exercising, mm-hmm. you remember all of that? I do. There, there are so, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm tiptoeing around not shitting on Melania. Mm. <laughs> all I'm gonna say is your fave could never. Just look at the. I put the. Um, I made the picture for this opus, the Obamas. Mm-hmm. Your fave could never. Look at the way that she just walked down. Look at that belt buckle. The color. The length of the coat. I mean, a, a coat that long. She didn't just go get that. She just didn't go get that at, at uh, Dillard's. No. And <laughs> whoever did her hair, hats off. And the, the, the curls are just, uh, we can stand all day, but shout out to the Obamas. Uh, I, I, uh, I even believe that they were wearing black designers. I'll have to, I'll, I'll have to look that up and maybe mm. uh, bring that back next week. Um, what the music the the music I wanted to connect with this so I've been working with um, Gateway shout out to Lee Koontz and everybody over there at the Gateway's Music Festival and one of the projects I was working on um, earlier today earlier this weekend um, involved the Afro American Symphony uh, the, the William Grant Still uh, Symphony Number no. One we talk all the time about being tired of firsts you know I'm doing I'm giving a lot yep. of shout out shout out to Titus, Titus Titus Underwood we're tired of firsts. But when I think about the Obamas as the first, fine. It took us to the 21st century. But look at the swag of it. Mm -hmm. Look at the beauty of it. And look at, you know, being beyond reproach. It's just one of those black sayings when you grow up, everybody black. Talks about how their parents said, you have to be two and three times better to get the same thing. Sorry that you know, it's always post-dinner. You have to be two and three times better to get the same thing. Is that not an example, Scott? No scandals. Now we're not saying that they're blameless. Obama did some horrible things when it comes to drone strikes and you know, drone policy. I, yeah. I, I think there are terrible things involved uh, and required of being the president. But at the end, I won't say but and at the end of the day, nobody went to jail. Nobody's kid. You know, remember when the Bush kids were in trouble? We didn't see that with the Obama children. Um, Michelle was actually doing things, initiatives for the next generation. Yeah. Look, that first next to thinking about the first of William Grant Still, we need to we need to challenge ourselves to not rely on firsts, but also celebrate the firsts that were really significant. For folks who don't know, I, you know, I, I feel like this is one of the stories I tell all the time. But for folks who don't know, William Grant Still, black composer, 1930, wrote his first symphony in A flat with all of these black aesthetics. So it's known as his Afro-American symphony. The following year, 1931, is premiered in Rochester. Scott, I've had the pleasure of being in that room and being on that stage. Mm, but, mm-hmm. you know, so and, and with that performance, that was the first time a composition uh, by a black composer um, hit a stage uh, with a professional orchestra here in the United States. That was uh, 1931. Of course, Florence Price will come two years later as the first uh, black woman. But um, here's a little bit of that Afro-American symphony. I like to think about the fourth movement um, when I hear uh, what it would sound like when I think about the Obamas and their first, when I think about what that sounds like, that aesthetic, Mm -hmm. I think about this melody in this fourth movement. So here's a little bit of that to get us to our final accidental for the first movement.
Before we get into this last accidental, Scott, this natural here, what did you think of Garth Brooks's Amazing Grace? Did you listen to it? So what you got for after this? <laughs> um, first and foremost, shout out to Garth Brooks, because when he came down, I was like, wait, who is that? Oh, that's Garth Brooks. And for me to know your name as a country singer, mm-hmm. I mean, you made some impact. And he was looking good, you know, not looking the way that some celebrities look after many years. I think there was some nerves involved. Yeah. Yeah. I was I wasn't mad at all at the performance, I, and I'm on, I'm honestly saying that I was moved. I think that country aesthetic, that sort of instrument, that vocal instrument, um, does the song well. And so, what I did you great. what did you think about the other two country guys that were all decked out in black and singing about unity? Yeehaw! I I missed the post show when, oh, okay. <laughs> when we were dead at the Capitol. Okay. So was I. All right, all right. <laughs> um, I just want to note that after Garth Brooks sang, Republican Senator uh, Roy, Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri, he came up to the stage and he was like, I, I, "We will find the clip if it wasn't like an eight-hour thing to dig through." But basically, he was like, "Garth, you sounded great." I'm thinking about that time Obama sang it. So think about it, Scott. Not only did they have the swag of the outfits and of being the first, the president can sing as well. Right on. Hooping. We've we've seen we've seen Barack Obama hooping. <laughs> they say, well, let me never mind. So <laughs> um Amazing Grace. So that was my segue with with Amazing Grace. After that performance, I started seeing uh, the resurgence of some articles that talked about the origins of Amazing Grace. And I actually was not familiar. So I thought I would share a little bit of that here. Were you were you familiar with the origins of Amazing Grace? No, but you did send on the article for me to peruse as well. And mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> like I said, a couple opuses ago, uh, it, it's gotten to the point now where I'm just sort of, you know, when I find out the possibility or the fact that something is based in white supremacy and racism, I just go, mm. Listen, last time you said that, they stormed the Capitol. <laughs> Remember? Did I? So, so, so don't act like nothing can happen to surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> we we good, don't need nothing else right now. That's a good point. But when, when, I'm, when we're talking about things from the past, sure. how about that? Sure. How about something as beloved as amazing grace this article comes from the washington examiner i'll link it in the description it's titled how sweet the sound amazing grace writer overcame a racist past i'm gonna scroll and read what i thought was uh, pretty interesting it says here a self-described free-thinking rationalist newton they're talking about the writer of the um song amazing grace is it john newton yeah john newton it says Newton negotiated with African chiefs to obtain slaves and even raped female slaves. He called himself a terrible blasphemer and embraced his self-identification as one who rejected God completely. But then, as Forrest Gump might say, God showed up. Mm -hmm. A violent storm flooded his ship with water. Fearing for his life, he soon began to think of Jesus, whom I had so often derided. These are his, his words of his life and of his death. For sins, not his own, but for those who in their distress should put their trust in him. In coming days, he became convinced that Jesus's message was true. I was no longer an atheist, he wrote. I was sincerely touched with a sense of undeserved mercy. Sorry, y'all. Undeserved mercy and being brought safe through my many dangers. I was a new man. The Christians listening, uh, the Christians in the audience, I'm sure will recall the story of Jesus walking on the water, you know, the boat um, getting shaky and folks getting scared. That's what I'm um, 
thinking about here. But Scott, let's face it. The fact of the matter is, respectfully, it was not Jesus who changed his mind. It was the thought that, oh, shit, I'm about to drown. I'm about to drown. I survive. So let me get back right. What do you think of that? Fear of death is the fear of God. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. that phrase, um, it put the fear of God in me. So what? that's fear of retribution. That's fear of punishment, right? Okay, I'm about to die. And just in case this whole afterlife <laughs> thing works out, I'm going to make Drag him, Scott. a deathbed repentance. <laughs> so Now, wait a minute. He, it says here that it did come back that he later on. Now, see, it's always so easy to armchair quarterback these things. Okay. I don't know how exactly I would react in that moment either. Mm-hmm. I might start saying a few... Hail Marys and a few hello dollars. I'm afraid of Jesus too. Right, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't know what <laughs> yeah. I would do. But yeah. at least it says here that like 20 years after that, he put out a pamphlet called Thoughts Upon African Slave Trade, where he said, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Is that good enough? Does that does that does he live it down from that repentance? And that was a bit of the conversation that I was singing. Oh. We need to give you know on one side we need to we need to not celebrate the music of a slaver. There's so much more out there, mm-hmm. which I often affirm. There's always something else. There's mm-hmm. always something else. And then folks saying, well, this is a great example of coming to terms, even if it was at fear of his lost life. I struggle a little bit because most of the times when it comes to pieces of music where where we have a shaky sort of uh, way of thinking about it, it's a piece of music that I'm not particularly connected to or whatever. I happen to think Amazing Grace is a beautiful song when mm. performed well, mm-hmm. as as uh, as Roy Blunt said with Obama's rendition, you know. So, <laughs> so what do you think? I mean, let let's just I mean, and, and let's not play it safe, Scott. No, I don't know. It's, it's up to you. You're in charge of something, and you have the decision to keep Amazing Grace or take it out. What are you going to do? I would keep it. You're going to keep it? I would. All right. Well, then, let's keep it here. Who, who's, who's, um, who has a good rendition of Amazing Grace? Hmm. What maybe it should... Well, last time we uh, talked about the fanfare on Amazing Grace by Adolphus Hailstork. That oh. was performed mm-hmm. um, at the inauguration. Um I don't know that that mechlet that you brought in that was and I got to meet her. I told you we were on a panel. That's right uh, together. So how about we reprise? We don't do too many reprises, but how about we reprise that instead of hearing the straight up um, Amazing Grace? Let's hear a black woman put her spin on it as we get into the second movement. So and in that place, the president said. My president sang amazing grace. Scott, before we uh, strike a chord, talk about the music that moved us, breaking news here on Triloquy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Look, 
Delaney just texted me. Shout out to Delaney Harris from the Classically Black podcast. Um, she texted me uh, with an article. The headline says the Metropolitan Opera hires its first chief diversity officer. And Delaney's text says, and I'm reading for real. When I tell you the Mets Facebook comments are a cesspool right now, bl- bless this woman because the whites are mad. So maybe we'll come back next week <laughs> after I go we and are? look at that. <laughs> what, what are we mad at now? No, they're mad that uh, the Met has hired a, um, a diversity officer and it's a black woman. That's what Delaney said anyway. See, this is how, if you're listening, this is how Triloquy gets put together. See, I, somebody texts me, I hear something, and we're like, oh, girl. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there because this literally, as we're recording, came came to my Apple Watch here. So At know. this point, me being the duly represented, represent, du, duly appointed representative of white folk, uh, I'm, I'm not mad at this point. So... <laughs> Um, okay, so speaking speaking of white folk, let's go <laughs> let's go ahead and get um, this out of the way. I shouldn't say out of the way. So when this drops on Wednesday, it'll be Mozart's birthday. Yeah, there are a lot of composers who I'm like, okay, they they have enough room. We've talked about them enough. I'm going to give a little bit of room to Mozart because I feel like his. Um, equations have made way for so much. We talked about um, in the first movement, the Afro-American Symphony, the William Grant Still. One of the reasons I love that symphony so much is that it's fully black. It has all of those jazz and juba and spiritual aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it fully follows the schematic of the traditional classical symphony as put forward by Haydn, of course, and, and later and, and more famously now, um, in popular culture, um, Mozart. We were listening to some Mozart over dinner, and I was talking with you about how Mozart kind of helps me understand opera because of, A, the way his operas are laid out so perfectly, mm-hmm. uh, perfectly, you know, completed, and um, how I can almost hear dialogue like that in his symphonies, and um, sure. and, and even in, you know, his bassoon concerto, clarinet. A, a sacred, you know, the clarinet concerto, all of these just pillar pieces in um the repertoire i don't i don't want to share or talk about the bassoon concerto because as is the case with most other bassoonists scott the only rendition of it i like is mine right (laughs) (laughs) uh but i will say um you're loving the horn uh concertos i think specifically the first concerto i think is a a cool starting point let me just say that the classical era Mm -hmm. by and large is not my bag yeah okay i mean i i I appreciate it and there's pieces within it that i think are amazing but it's not what i gravitate to so kind of like you yeah as i was sitting here listening to you i thought you know what it is it is his operatic stuff that really moves me the most, like the Queen of the Night, you know, and, and her arias. Yeah, uh, not the and, Whitney Houston, but and, the other one, you know. <laughs> right, right. And you know, let's let's not forget that moment in Shawshank Redemption, right, when uh, a little bit of Mozart gets played for the prisoners in the yard, and Morgan Friedman says, "I have no idea to this day what those Italian ladies were singing about." Truth is, truth is, I don't, don't want to know. know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. 
Is that your black voice? No. <laughs> uh, that's my shabby impression of somebody doing a Morgan Freeman impression. But uh, anyway, that music is the uh, duettino, the soul aria. Another reprise there. I think we've talked about that before. One thing, um, and, and we're, we're going to move on here. Shout out to Mozart, but we're not spending all day here. Well, something that, that I like to point out, you know, when, when you talk about Mozart's influence and impact, there, there are Mozart melodies, you know, Ina Klein and Nacht music and all this stuff that folks it's know. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, and, and maybe this is another reprise, but I like to um, shout out the excerpt from um, his opera. I think The Abduction of the Seraglio is the name of the opera. From that, you get a melody that um, served as the foundation of a famous cartoon that I grew up on. everywhere so as i encourage you to equitably listen to art music classical music whatever i also encourage you to just type in go to youtube go to uh, your music dsp whatever and type in mozart and click on something that you don't know or you don't think you know that that looks different and just appreciate what he did there's a reason why his name has survived all these years my mom did the baby mozart she said when she was pregnant she would put the uh, headphones on her <laughs> stomach so yeah. maybe that's how i got into all this nonsense but but yeah shout out to mozart uh, i will you you will never see me diminishing the impact he's had on art Yes, Stan and Mozart um, inspired me to put some of the bassoon concerto in there anyway. Happy uh, happy birthday, belated by 256-odd years or something like that. Yeah. Well, Scott, from the king of classical to the king of Zamunda. So uh, Del and I were flipping channels last night, Sunday evening, and Drumline was on. Shout out to Nick Cannon. <laughs> integral film like people talk about Del said I've never seen Amadeus the movie Del said we're gonna watch it this week no matter what mm -hmm. I think Drumline is one of those movies you've seen Drumline surely boy that time when he leans over and starts playing on the other guy's drum I'd have, I'd have swung too I'd have swung too <laughs> fuck you and your drumsticks on my drum <laughs> right man you're gonna need your Vaseline handy if you watch out anyway so my favorite part of the movie is <laughs> <laughs> when Orlando Jones, you know, Dr. Lee is up on the podium and he's doing this two hand conducting thing exactly like this. Back when it came out, we were making fun of it because obviously that's not a conducting move. When I watch it now, oh, he bodied that. Oh, what like changed? That, <laughs> my, my perspective, I, I had to become a grown up to understand the swag in a move like uh, that. Okay. You know, oh, he bodied that. Personal and of, touches. And of course, what he is conducting, <laughs> quote unquote, is the King's Motorcade. That's the name of the uh, tune, King's Motorcade, from the movie Coming to America, a piece of music by Nile Rodgers. If you don't know who Nile Rodgers is, he's listed most places as a, um, a guitarist, um, uh, but black composer who's worked on all sorts of music. And 
that you know watching that scene from drumline got me back to the original soundtrack of coming to america listening to that original recording with you know the the, uh, the brass and the and the african drums mm. what a what a masterpiece the king's motorcade by nile rogers So, Scott, what would you have done if you're in the barbershop and coming to America waiting for your turn? And they start saying, that's y'all one. That's, that's y'all one. one. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, a, what a brilliant film, Scott. I probably, would, brilliant film. I probably would have been like the young man that was sitting there just waiting to get his hair cut. Just, <laughs> you know, like sitting there like great minds slugging it out. And I've got a front row seat. And do you remember in the first scene who was getting their hair cut? Mm-hmm. Was, uh, what's, what's me and these actors' names? He played radio. Oh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Cuba, Ju- Cuba uh, Gooding Jr. was uh, sitting there in the chair. Was so, it? Yeah. yeah, that was him. Oh, yeah, big. go back and why It was him getting his hair cut. All right. Um, so, yeah. Uh you want let, let's keep things black. We're talking about um, classic black films. Well, you have a, a classical black recording. Yeah. Um, anybody who's listened to the last couple opuses know that it's been difficult for me to get away from the news, and I have noticed recently that I have so many emotions that I. I'm not exactly sure which one I'm dealing with at any yep. one point in time. Yep. And I'm sure a lot of people are feeling this um, just with the state of things, uh, the isolation, not knowing when you're going to have a new normal, you know, when you can be more relaxed, like you remember mm-hmm. you were a year ago. And then tomorrow radar is having that tumor removed. Right. And it just, it, it seems to me like every single piece of music that I put on elicited some really strong reaction mm-hmm. either tears or or anger or something like that so i i was i was trying to find things that were not triggering and i stumbled on this release that's about a year or a year and a half old called black swans first recordings of black classical music performers and this is the old nostalgic like scratchy wax reel sort of a sound with uh, the very first time that a black voice or a black musician has been put on wax and literally put on wax. And for me to listen to things like, uh, you know, there was even variations of emotion for me there, but not so extreme. Yeah. But listening to Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, mm-hmm. uh, Nathaniel Death's In the Bottoms yeah. is on there. And But for me, uh, I think it was uh, Henry Burley's arrangement of the traditional cradle song. First and foremost, you know, uh, Harry T. Burley. Was it, did I say Henry? Oh, uh, yeah. H- Henry was his name, but maybe they called him Harry. Oh, okay. Like that. Um, Thacker, uh, Henry Thacker Burley, I think is even uh, his middle name. They affirm him as the father of the spiritual. Mm. All black vocalists know him, you know, t- such an incredible legacy. Uh, but you're talking about strong emotions. When you played the recording uh, for me before we turned the mics on, I found myself trying to tear up thinking about 
the year 1919, all of the hardships of existing as a black person back then, much less as a black musician. And still they managed to find a way to get some recordings together, you know, get some rehearsals or maybe practice. So you're ready to, to get it down. And, and we're able to have a peek in, mm-hmm. into history like that. It's incredible. And they speaking of history, uh, I don't know who said the quote, but history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. Mm. Because Mm. in 1919, when these first recordings were being laid down, uh, that summer was the nickname the Red Summer. Have you mm-hmm. have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. There was uh, some major race riots in Washington, D.C., Chicago, um, a few other major cities, and even in rural Arkansas, there was uh, race riots that started, I believe, just with some drunk servicemen at the end of World War I yeah. hassling black veterans. Mm. And I thought, damn, I just flew halfway around the world, fought in this war, fly halfway around back, and now I still got to mess with you in my own country. Yeah, so uh, when when you think about that summer, the one that we just had, Mm -hmm. not knowing what's coming up, I mean, how are we not in a loop? How is the simulation not stuck? I'm thinking about um, the opus that featured Tyshawn Sori. This is not an ad, but uh, you know, last week I uh, talked about uh, how Opera Philadelphia is uh, having a broadcast of uh, his piece of music, "Cycles of My Being." You know, again, that's or uh, thinking back to um, the opus uh, that I did with um, Ensemble Pie, um, Allison Longin's Hole. Uh, talking about um, the pattern, you know, that, that, that's what you're talking about. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're just stuck in this loop, you know, this cycle, this pattern, and it's going to take something radical. Oh, my gosh, God, like you're, you're getting me in my bag. I'm not trying to uh, get on my soapbox here, but it's going to take something radical and something different to break out of this cycle. Yeah. And what we're seeing is that folks who try to break that cycle are punished or, or, or pushed back. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about. That's exactly what you're speaking to right there. I think so. Yeah. Um, and I think that with someone like myself, who's only been paying attention to these issues in the last couple of years, and frankly, who has only started to deal with his own privilege, mm-hmm. like in Opus 8, yeah, that's probably when I started really doing the work. Um, that is where I start trying to advocate from. Well, would you, we just, okay, I see what you're talking about. We just need a little bit more time. Yeah. And, and I know how horrible that is to say. I'm only looking at it from my vantage point, which is only a couple years. Sure, sure. For, for the real work, though, what, I, what I'm talking about. Whereas I know that this is something that has been centuries in coming. Yeah. So... Long story, Black Swans. Where, <laughs> where can they find it? Is it on Spotify? I think it I was is. Looking the whole the whole album is on Spotify. Okay. That's where I was listening to it, and um, I I really think that uh, I was really hoping I was really hoping for more of the spirituals because you still hear mm-hmm. can you still hear canon. You know, there's some arias by Delib and sure. you know fancy uh, uh, French operatic things that they're doing, but I guess that's what was available. Yeah. Um, or and we know or, that they knew them. We or was it, well, sure, knew sure. So who knows? Maybe more of these will be found. Maybe another project, you know, will will come out with some of those. But if you'd like to hear the bedrock 
of black people on record, check out Black Swan's first recordings of black classical music performers. So in much, much more contemporary black news, black mm. uh, uh, black culture, there was um, a versus battle last week. Have we talked about versus? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about when I'm I know, talking about I know versus? what you're talking about. I haven't actually seen one, but I get the idea. My favorite was Nelly versus Ludacris. Mm. That one was lit. I like Ludacris. But there, there's been the um, uh, Gladys Knight versus, um, oh my goodness. Oh, the, no shade. Oh, oh Patty no. LaBelle. Patty LaBelle. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. That that one was blessed. Um, but last week, it was a versus between Ashanti and Keisha Cole. I'm sure you would uh, recognize a couple of their songs as I've played it. If you're, if you're listening, if you don't know who they are by name, I'm sure you would um, recognize a couple of their songs. Long story short, I want to bring this up because Ashanti won the battle. If you don't know what versus is, it's these legendary artists. They'll pick 20 songs and put them back to back whose song was better for each round and who won. So most folks um, last week are talking about how Ashanti won. She was definitely more of the pop artist. But um, I wanted to give a few flowers to Keisha Cole. I'm going to get into uh, the idea of, you know, classic technique um, in R&B and other uh, popular music here in a second. But the song Love was her big pop tune um it was so big it became a standard in those korean um uh you know got talent shows or you know mm-hmm. all that stuff you were hearing korean people singing this r&b tune um because a it's so beautiful and b it involves and includes a vocal malismatic sort of uh, technique that I can't quite sing that I think even warrants training to learn um, how to how to uh, do that thing. You hear it right here in the chorus. easy to not know about little gems like that little vocal flip that I love so much that so many have have loved to kind of push it to the side because it belongs in this genre that's not classical but when we're talking about the melismatic material in um, Handel oratorios when we talk about what it takes to sing a, a Schubert song I think there are techniques classic elements all across you know, cultures, including in that tune by Keisha Cole. For those of us not steeped in music vocabulary, the melislissima is... <laughs> melismatic. So, Mel- melismatic. Or, or melisma is when you are singing many notes 
that aren't articulated so like ha 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 you know they they would call that a melisma a real singer can do it but anyway so the the vocal flippings and everything um that exist in the world come in all many types Keisha Cole gave us a a very unique one she didn't win that versus last week but she's won a spot in uh in classic R&B history as far as I'm concerned so shout out to her and shout out to that tune love um so we have a a very special guest for the third movement her name is maria ellis i'm going to tell you a little bit uh, of her story um scott so she was in um marketing you know worked at a job um wanted to switch didn't want uh doing that to be her legacy so as in Untraditional student, um, early 30s, went back to school, got a degree in music education, uh, choral uh, and vocal music education, uh, started teaching um, inner city uh, ensembles. One of the ensembles had a performance coming up that was big, um, got some promo on the radio, and after that spot on the radio, was invited to do a radio show. Her idea was to bring together, as we do here on Triloquy, that's why it's so amazing, the classic elements of all music. It's a show that airs in St. Louis called Bach and Beyonce. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll put all of the a, a link to the show and information on it in the description of this. So, um, what I speak with uh, Maria Ellis about is the show Bach and Beyonce. We get into our Beyonce bag, obviously. No way. Um, what it means for classical radio to be moving uh, in, in in that direction, and um, what it what it could mean uh, across the entire field. Do you think uh, and and 10 to 15 years comment aside, do you think we will live to see a normalization of Bach and Beyonce's across the country on classical radio stations? Maybe even if just for an hour a week, we do that. I think as specialty shows, it could work. Mm -hmm. When you talk about that spread across an entire broadcast day, Mm -hmm. um, I can see program directors killing themselves and then rolling over in their grave trying to figure out how they would make it work. Well, Just because you don't know what you're going to get when you tune in, it's hard to, uh, unless you market it as that, you never know what you're going to get when you tune in. I don't know. Uh, the way that listening has moved from terrestrial radio stations, meaning broadcast, mm-hmm. to streams and uh, services like your Spotify's and Apple Music and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Who knows? Uh, I never, I, I certainly never predicted where we, that we would get to where we are now. This podcast, I, w- I would have told you you were crazy if you were to, if you were to tell me that twenty years ago, yeah, you're going to end up hosting this, uh, co-hosting a podcast. I'd be like, right. <laughs> well, I'm crazy, so it's a good fit. Uh, <laughs> no, they said I was crazy. <laughs> it, well, you know, all of this stuff starts somewhere. It's, it's not a huge national um, service-wide thing yet, but it, it, it is starting. Let me preface, let me preface I, just because I say that I couldn't hear it apart from a specialty show. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that it couldn't happen. I'm not saying it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it's definitely possible, and I've tuned in. It, uh, it's a great show. Um, we the way that uh, we start our conversation uh, quickly going back to the inauguration on the day of the inauguration Maria Ellis green screened um, on her Instagram uh, the brand new day scene from the Wiz I'm sure you know that movie mm-hmm. and she was in front of the screen dancing and just being happy it just everyone just 
was not taking themselves so seriously that day because we had something to celebrate. So we start our conversation uh, by talking about why that film, why that music is classic, why it's classical. And we go on into the rest of our conversation. Here's a little bit of Brand New Day from The Wiz to get us there. The definition of classical means to hold to a standard. It's a standard in a different genre art form or something like that. And it's that exemplary standard. Um, the Wiz is classical as far as our culture is concerned. It's something that we always refer back to. Mm -hmm. um, so many stars was in that movie um, that are just classic to black culture. So 100%, The Wiz is a classic for me. Always have and always will be. <laughs> And I, the other thing that I was thinking about was the fact that radio hosts, content creators, we have to get used to not taking ourselves too seriously. So just seeing the joy and the joyousness in, in that was 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 phenomenal, uh, you know, spreading word on those things and getting yourself out there. Social media is the tool, you know, that, that's it. It's even, you know, how we met. We've talked about the app Clubhouse uh, on this podcast before. Uh, but but I wonder what your thoughts are on social media as a tool in broadcast. It seems that a lot of the, you know, previous generation, they aren't so in tune with social media, uh, older generation, I mean, in broadcast, you know. Um, but for us, for folks our age and in our industries, it seems like it is a must to be in tune with uh, with social media. Yeah, I, um, so every week, um, okay, so my show, there's two other shows that aired with, um, my show and uh my daughter's in the background playing a game so i hope you didn't hear her oh no you're fine um, but so i look at the like you can see how many like soundcloud mm -hmm. visits each episode has, and i see that my episodes have way more listeners than theirs and i believe that's because every week i'm out promoting my show across all my social media platforms and they don't so that that's why mine have more listeners. It's not right. that my show is any better or not. It's just that I actually promote it. Thursday nights at eight o'clock, I'm sitting with my phone saying, okay, Baca Beyonce is on. I'm chatting with people who are listening live um, to the show. And on Sundays, I do the same thing. I'm, I'm chatting with people. I'm like, hey, this is what I'm playing. Let's have a conversation, blah, 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 blah. So to me, social media is just another way of getting the word out and getting it out to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because everybody is attached to, to these phones for some reason. We are, even if we say we don't want to be attached to them. We are. <laughs> we are. Yeah. Stop lying. We attached to them. We got it. <laughs> So I try to use, I mean, I just use it to my advantage. If people, you know, feel the need to follow me and, and listen to what I have to say, I appreciate it. But I also like, I, I'm a talker. Yeah. And I love I love talking to people and getting their perspective. And even if your perspective or views don't agree with mine, I just like having a conversation because I really want to understand where you're coming from. So yeah, 
Yeah. And before we get more into your show and the work you're doing, um, how about you tell the folks about who you are? But what's your musical background? Are you do you consider yourself classically trained or or was there a different pathway for you? Uh, I am classically trained. Uh, my I have a degree in music education from the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Um, music, gospel music is is my my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up. Uh, well, I am um, apostolic, Pentecostal apostolic, and so my father and his uh, eight siblings had a singing group. Oh wow! Uh, my mother was president of the choir, which means the four of us got drugged to choir rehearsal every week. <laughs> um, and I noticed at a really early age that I could hear parts, and I could always hear when people were singing the wrong part. I was like, uh, "No, that's not what it's supposed to be. It should be this." And got in trouble a lot because, yeah, respectfully. But when you're five, right, nobody want to hear you. Exactly. You know? So they figure you don't know what you're talking about. And so my sister and I, we would stay up at night and listen to songs on gospel radio and and like really just figure out the voice parts and like see if we can sing through all the parts. And I always had love for music. I always had love for conducting, but I just didn't know that I could have a career as a choral conductor. And so uh, I remember in high school telling my teacher, like, I want to do something with directing the choir. And she was like, you know, you could be a teacher. And I knew I was like, no, that's, that ain't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went and got a business degree and I worked for AT&T for 12 years. And I was like, this here ain't it. This, this, is, <laughs> this ain't it. This ain't it. I don't want to die saying, and y'all put on my casket, like she's so called ID. Like, mm-hmm. I just think it's more to my life than just that. And so I begged my husband to let me go back to school. And um, long story short, the the job I was working in, it was laying people off. And if you got laid off, they pay for you to go back to school for two years. And so I had enough seniority where I wasn't laid off, but mm-hmm. I asked, I was like, if I get, can y'all lay me off and somebody else can, keep, can have my job? And they was like, oh yeah. And I was like, can I be able to go back to school? And they was like, yeah. And so they, uh, I got laid off and was able to go back to school. They was only supposed to pay for two years, but they ended up paying for all four years. Look at God. So they ended That's up paying That's what I was just all... about to say. <laughs> <laughs> ended up paying for all four years. And um, it's been like one of the best decisions that I've made because. So you went I back to school really for, for music? Yep. Okay, gotcha. In 2013. Wow. Congratulations. Being grown. Right. <laughs> and not knowing that. That's, that's the other part not knowing what I need to know to get into the program hmm. because so I, I couldn't sight read. Um, hmm. I couldn't count rhythms. I had my knowledge on composers and stuff like, so you, you know, felt like the Western. learning curve was just higher for you. So how did yes, you overcome be- that as a, as a uh, non-traditional student? Yeah. Being old, we could just call it what it is <laughs> being old. And it's not that I was super old, but like when you like 30 and like everybody else is like 18. 18 right, right. Yeah, you're old. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was humbling because I, um, I well, number one, I was, I was determined that I was going to get this degree. Number mm-hmm. one, now I don't have a job and I love a good paying job. So yeah, Amen. Like, I got to do something because <laughs> this ain't going to work. Um, but I asked for help. I mean, like I was in everybody's, tutoring session or mm. training session. And, and I became like the campus big sister for oh, the music wow. department. So of course I had a car. 
So if people needed rides, I was taking them places. And, you know, since I was grown, I had food. Yeah. <laughs> so if people needed to eat. You know, oh, look on. at that. Come on over to the house and you help me and I'll feed you. So I, it was a lot of, uh, not not to be extra black, there was a lot of fried chicken going on <laughs> with people. <laughs> and speaking of extra black, the, the listeners can't see, but you're wearing a T-shirt. It looks like. You got black composers. Uh, I yes. see, you know, uh, uh, Nathaniel Dent and Florence Price. Yeah, is, is that something that uh, that happened for you in going back to school, really learning more about these uh, black composers of uh, so-called classical music? No. Hmm. This is something that happened for me after I got out of school. That's always the case, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this, this T-shirt, this is from my brand, the Girl Conductor brand. Um, and I'm selling it for Black History Month. So if you want to buy it, you can go to girlconductor.com. Please plug. do. But um, no, I learned. So I, of course, have the concise history of Western music sitting right next to me because I taught a class this morning. But when I was reading this book um, as a music history, you know, in music history, I was like, where are all the Black people? Like it wasn't. Ain't no black people in this book. <laughs> and so when I when I got out of school and started attending like uh, American Corps director conferences and things like that, then people who had went to like historically black colleges and stuff would speak of all these black composers. And I was like, wait, wait, hold on, where do where these people come from? And so then I started doing my own study about these people. But no, they didn't teach us that in school. No, they they would have us believe, unfortunately, that. Black people only did uh, R&B and gospel and, and mm-hmm. music that wasn't, uh, you know, standard, you know. Right. As far as you they were concerned goes. anyway. Right. So with this um, newfound education, both in school and otherwise, how did that converge into your making it onto the airwaves? So <laughs> the airwave story is really not interesting at all. Um, <laughs> I went... <laughs> I went to the studio last year. So I am, I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. and I um, conduct an elementary choir and a high school choir. So the high school choir is predominantly black. And that's not true. It's mixed now, but it was at one point, point predominantly black. And it was made up of students from lower income area, areas. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a beautiful program. Cause like we pay for like everything for them. Like, we transport them from school, we feed them dinner, we take them back home, we buy uniforms, buy music. So they, they don't have to pay for anything, they just show up. So I was doing an interview because we were doing a, a concert at uh, the Cathedral Basilica. It's one of the uh, prestigious places in mm-hmm. St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And they were doing a, a Black History concert. And so we were asked to perform. So I did that interview. And then a few, uh, a few weeks earlier than that, I was starting a new children's choir through the St. Louis Children's Choirs for uh, students that were in a predominantly black area. So St. Louis uh, is super segregated, unfortunately. So literally all the black people live on one side and all the white people live on the other side of the city. And like you can, like there's the, we have like the Delmar Divide, like you can see it. You can say, okay, that's the hood. I'm gonna go right into it. I see it as I cross this street, I'm in the hood. And so, I'm the kind of person, I just ask dumb questions. So when I started working for the St. Louis Children's Choirs, one of my first questions was, where are all the black kids at? Mm-hmm. Like, why, why are we not reaching out to these kids? And somebody told me, they was like, well, they don't, they don't want to sing 
this type of music, classical music. And I said, I said, but that's not true. I said, because I was one of those kids who enjoy, I just enjoyed singing. Mm-hmm. I didn't care about what kind of music it was. I, I enjoy singing and I enjoy learning different styles. I just figured it always made me a better singer. And so that's where that came from. And, and then, so fast forward pandemic, blah, 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 blah. Um, and like October, the station GM uh, messaged me and was like, what do you think about doing radio? And I was like, oh, let's go. Let's do it. I yeah. love it. And that, I mean, that's where it came from. So it's not like a super interesting story per se, but I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. No, but what I think that speaks to is the fact that when you're always on your A game, when you're always putting your genuine self forward, you never know who can see that or who can hear that or who can uh, be impacted by that. I, I, th- I think that's a beautiful story of uh, getting into the field of radio. That's phenomenal. Um, Thank you. So let's talk about that show, Bach and Beyonce. First of all, there are a lot of Beyonce fans in the world. Okay, I stand. I'm, I'm different than them. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm one of the, the, you know, back in the Destiny's Child days. Okay. I, I okay. wonder what your relationship is with the music of Beyonce and why she came to mind when it came to even titling this show and programming the show. So this show came from a PD session um, that I offered. And my, uh, when I was student teaching, my high school boys were like, we can't get into the classical music. Like we, mm-hmm. it's not happening. It's not working for us. And I was like, dude, I said, there's so many hip hop artists that sample classical music. Oh yeah. And so I did this, this like this session for them when I was playing like Nas and Ludacris and is it P Diddy now? Is it Diddy? Yeah, uh, Diddy, yeah, I know. Diddy. <laughs> it was Puff Daddy Diddy. When I was coming up, you know. <laughs> yeah, Puff. I was gonna say Puff Daddy, but I didn't want to make myself sing too old. But yeah, so I played, I played all these songs for them, and they was like, "Oh, okay, we can, we can get with this." And so I was asked to do a PD session one day, and I was like, "Yeah, I just do it on Bach and Beyonce." Like, and and because when I was in oral skills, so for those who don't mm-hmm. know, music majors, we had to take oral skills and oral training and whatnot. Um, we were given Ave Maria and my foolish self was like, oh, I know this. This is on Sasha. You're thinking, album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got this. Oh, that is so funny. And it, it, and it wasn't, it was sugar. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Well, I don't know this. Wow. But, but that's where the show came from. It was like using um, hip hop and rap and pop music really to help, to help me have a connection with, classical music because that's so far out of my realm like i i just learned who bach was like i just like I, that's the guy that looked like the dude on the oatmeal box right I mean, <laughs> but beyonce is beyonce and here she go <laughs> and here she is and she's she's talented in what she does so you mean to tell me that this woman with this incredible range of stuff is not exemplary right because she didn't study western music what about American music? Does that not count? Exactly. Like I thought we had a whole war to get away from like the <laughs> European stuff. Didn't we do that? You know, we, so. we, we did. And on top of all of that, you know, the music has those Western classical elements too. And I think Ave Maria is the best example. But if you think about the piano 
um, in the song mm-hmm. Halo or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the lyricism of If I Were a Boy. Personally, my favorite Beyonce joint is the song Mine. And that that opens with just simple piano and it goes into ah. other stuff, um, has has Drake in it. So, you know, I, I, can, I can speak for a long time about, you know, Beyonce and her music's, you know, uh, proximity to that, that so-called classical aesthetic. But I'm sure it's more than just Beyonce that makes a way um, onto your show, Bach and Beyonce. What are some other examples of things that folks may not think are connected to classical music that you connect to classical? Um, so I, I try to, what I try to do on the show is um, tell, number one, tell stories but also tell the story so that, that these people that we hold on these platforms, like way mm-hmm. up in the air, these was just regular people. And like to, to put them, to humanize them as just regular people that we all can connect with. Uh, on my last show, I speak about um, Beethoven mm-hmm. and how Beethoven wrote a song, uh, Fury Elise, for this girl, Therese, who didn't even like him. <laughs> like you just wrote a whole song about somebody who incurred on about you. So why, why would you do that? But that to me, that's, that's human. That, yeah. that makes you human. And like I was saying earlier, the show that I just did talked about the classics, like in all different genres of music and how, if by definition, if we use the definition of classical, then in every genre, there is classical music in every mm-hmm. genre because mm-hmm. they are the standards. Um, Aretha Franklin's um, uh, Natural Woman, yeah, classic. And beautiful um, French horn playing in it, you know, and strings. <laughs> come on, come on. I mean, yeah. so, I mean, that's just classic. I even went to the church. Um, Jesus can work it out. If you go to, to the black church, that's a classic. Um, Sweet Home Alabama, I came down that path too. Sweet Home Alabama, <laughs> classic. So all of these different classics and these various genres that we have to hold on these on these same levels as the, the box and whatnot, because I think if those people were still alive, they would be like, I can get with that. I can oh, get yeah. With that. I can see now, one thing that, the Nene. Yeah, they, oh, yeah, they <laughs> definitely be all over the Nene. But one thing I did is I took... Um, the intro to Beyonce's countdown mm-hmm. and I'm not going to burst myself and try to sing it. And I posted that on my um, Instagram because it was her birthday. So I posted on my Instagram and I said, who sang this? Was it Bach or was it Beyonce? Boy, oh, yeah. Cause those are all melismas. Yeah, and if, exactly. I, if I just, if I just look at it, as just standard sheet music and not, not as it being pop. It looks the same as one of the Bach chorales. It's the same, the same patterns, the same rhythm. So, so that that's what I try to do is try to make the show um, human and fun, and um, you know, talk about issues that people on that station on. But here, I the classical station is a predominantly Caucasian audience. Of course, yeah. So to hear somebody um, like I did a show about. Uh, the soundtrack of January 6th, the day of the, the insurrection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I gave the viewpoint as a, a black woman who grew up in Ferguson. Right. And how different that looked and mm-hmm. how, how we as a people, we can't grow. And when I say as a people, I mean Americans. We can't grow if we're not being honest with each other. And sometimes we just need to be honest. Like, 
that stuff was jacked up. You know, no matter what color you are, you ain't you ain't got no business doing no stuff like that. So I have to That's say, to you are living the dream. You know, when I was in classical radio officially, I could talk about anything. You know, I could talk about issues and those sorts of things, but the music was always strictly in that Western European tradition. So for you to blow it up that way, I consider it so revolutionary. What do you think it's going to take for that to be more of the norm? How, how can we... Uh, convince program directors to have Bach and Beyonce's or whatever they want to name it all across the country? Um, I think, first of all, I think they should listen to my show. But <laughs> Come on, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but also, I think, I think we have to... Um, social media, back to social media. Yeah. Social media is allowing us to be in everybody's worlds and see things... Through, through everybody's eyes. I think of TikTok, yeah. you know? So if, if something is going on on TikTok, I remember, um, what's it, what's it going on? Like sea shanties are trending now on, are they, on TikTok? I don't even have an account, so. <laughs> yeah, so, so sea shanties are trending on TikTok and all kind of kids are singing these songs and adults, but but they're all just singing these songs that if a teacher probably would have presented that in school, they probably would have been like, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't wanna be no parts of that. But this generation that's coming up, they don't have those same biases and things that like we grew up with. They mm -hmm. don't have that. They don't care. If somebody in the school is, is different, they like, look, hey, that's my friend. He got three legs. That's my boy. I don't <laughs> care about that. You know what I mean? Like they don't, yeah. they yeah. don't care. So I think um, we as a, as a culture, American culture, we just have to change and just stop making something seem like it's better than something else. No, let's just enjoy music. Yeah. yeah it don't need to be on a pedestal let's just enjoy good music and, and that's what i'm trying to do on the show and hopefully other stations of a pick up on that um and have their own baka beyonce in a town or you know have my show be syndicated i'm here for that too you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're open to that too <laughs> so you know speaking of listening to your show what is coming up on bach and beyonce on the next edition for folks to check out yeah so uh episode four um, I actually don't know. I haven't recorded this yet because I'm, I'm torn. Um, I have so many ideas of where I want to take this show. And I always want to make sure that number one, I'm being true to myself mm -hmm. and being true to my, um, to the people who listen to the show. So, um, I was thinking about doing something with movies. Um, I got some, I got I'm so excited. I'm so excited about February. I'm so excited to play our music. Yeah. And and our classical artists on this station because I don't know how often they get played. So I'm super, super excited about that. I'm excited to tell love stories uh, with Valentine's Day coming up, but not just love stories from, you know, just random people, but like love stories from people who create music together. Yeah and have it. I think that's so cool. I wish, I wish I had that. My husband is not musical at all. I love him to death, but he didn't get that, that part of, of, of music or whatnot. And that's okay. <laughs> I sing enough for the house, but, but I tell him those stories, but tell them stories that, that need to be told that people wouldn't normally hear. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what I want to do. And then telling stories from the point of view or the lens of being black. And being a black woman and not sounding 
angry and things like that, but being able to talk intelligently about uh, a box sonata or a chorale, um, but just phrasing it in a way that everybody can get with it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar to, to like what Hamilton, what Lin Manuel Miranda did with Hamilton. Yeah. So I could understand everything that was happening when they was talking about on Insurrection Day. And they kept talking about Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. I was like, "Yep, I saw that on Hamilton. I know exactly what they're talking about right now." Because I don't remember that from from history in yeah. U.S. government. I don't remember that. So yeah, yeah. Well, how can folks tune in? What's the day? What's the time? What's the frequency? What's the website? Give us all the deets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, thank. Thank you so much for for having me and for for giving me space on your platform. I really, really appreciate that. And I'm really glad that we connected. Likewise, likewise. That's so cool. And you got to come do my, you got to come do my podcast. Like we got to, we got to sit and talk about that. Of course. Yes. So um, I, uh, Baca Beyonce airs on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time on Classic 107.3. Um, I have live links that are on my Girl Conductor account on all of my social media platforms. So that's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, Wednesdays at four on YouTube, the Girl Conductor live podcast um, is out every Wednesday at four. And that's like, it's, it's short and sweet. So it's like just your little drive time home from school. So I can, I can hit your brain about something that's going on in this head over here. Yeah. And we can have a conversation. Absolutely. Um, so that's that. Um, Sundays and Sundays at two for Black and Beyonce. Wait a minute. That's how I'm missing. Let me let me say that again. Sure. Thursdays at eight p.m. Central Standard Time, and Sundays at two p.m. Central Standard Time on Classic 107.3, The Voice for the Arts in St. Louis. Amen. Um, Girl conductor, Bach and Beyonce. Yay. So you're in radio. You understand it's all about telling the story, painting that picture as you bring in that next tune. Do that for us with your your favorite or one of your favorite Beyonce compositions for us as we uh, outro out here. Look, let me tell you all about this song. Uh... I know every woman and probably every man, you have those days where you just feel like uh, you just look like crap. Like everything is going wrong in, in life and your hair is not curling right. Or maybe you got a new pimple or, you know, maybe something ain't right, but you have that person who just loves you flaws and all. Ah, people see Beyonce and they just see her as this beautiful model creature and she comes up with this song that says i'm a train wreck in the morning i got an attitude in the afternoon but throughout all of that you still love me and that's the love i want and that's the love that i actually have with my husband i'm so happy about that so here is beyonce's flaws and all i'm a train wreck in the morning i'm a bitch in the afternoon Every now and then without warning I can be really mean toward you What do you think about the spirit of that tune, Flaws and All? The idea that someone is willing to, no matter what, take you as you are. I'll believe it when I see it. Oh, come on. Every time you come over here with some with with something... I don't say, all right, Scott, I don't feel like that. Get out. No. (laughs) Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't say that. I was talking about the feeling of, uh, no, I I don't 
right now being uh, single for as long as I have been, no, I don't feel like it's out there. I feel like I would have run into it. You got to speak it into existence. All right. You got to, and we have microphones here. And all I'm saying is that right now, unless, (laughs) unless she shows up in between the sofa and the refrigerator, I'm not going to meet her. I'm not going to meet her. Well, it is. Yeah, we are. How am I? We are in a Panera. We're in a, we're in a Ponderosa and. (laughs) And it's hard. It's hard to meet. Okay, we 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 gonna get you there. We we gotta get those vaccines. This is not. This is not. This is not the. This is not fine. Scott a date podcast. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) You're right. It's triloquy. So let's get into the triloquy. Music helps us share ourselves. Music shows us that all of it matters. Every story within every voice, every note within every song. You mentioned it earlier. Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity to give other folks the opportunity to send you whatever vibes you want sent because you got a stressful week ahead. Yep, Radar is going to have his tumor removed tomorrow morning. I got to drop him off at 8 o'clock and I am uh, handling it okay. But what you don't see is a mess of emotion that I am barely keeping a lid on. Radar is a good a good pal, and he's going to be just fine. He's Scott. better. He's going to be just fine. You don't have anything to worry about. And, of course, as Radar heals, when you um, go work on that plantation you work on, you know, you can drop Radar off. We can we can be babysitters. But... I've, I've never been offered babysitting privileges, so it'll be a first. <laughs> well, the way, that, trust me? the way that you've given treats and spoil him over here, I'm sure that he would have no trouble staying here because while he he's at work. It, because he deserves it. He's I'm a good dog. I'm serious. Anyway, I've never been connected um, to a pet in that way. I've, I've, I've had outdoor cats and things, but your relationship with Radar has given me a, a, a whole new perspective on How man's so? best friend. Just, oh. just, just being that pal. So mm. we're, 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 we're sending, we're sending warm vibes Thanks. to, to Radar. You. He's, he's going to be just fine. Thank you. All right. So Scott, this is the thing. There are a couple things that I have to address in the triloquy this week that, uh, it's kind of difficult for me. Um, we're going to start with Sphinx. So, you went last year mm-hmm. for the first time. You got the experience of not only being at the conference, but witnessing the competition, you know, the junior and the uh, senior division. Can you speak to sort of uh, the electricity of attending a concert in that way? It's one thing, as we were uh, as we were saying before we cut on the mics, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to the concert hall to hear a few concertos. It's concerto night. It's another thing to listen to them and knowing that one of them gets to win $50,000. That's what I was going to say. The, the fact that there is something at stake, the uh, survivor-esque sort of uh, feel that it takes on that, you know, uh, two men and two, one leaves, you know, yeah. that, that sort of to the death sort of a vibe that amps everything up. But I have to say, Every single concert we went to at Sphinx was amazing in my book. To hear, I've never heard Egmont performed live, the Egmont Egmont Overture by Beethoven. And to feel that coming up through your feet, Mm -hmm. that that was just, uh, it raised goose flesh on my arms. And to see the junior and uh, regular competitions, um, I was blown away. That bass, the the bass concerto, I forget who wrote it, but man... That was just 
blew my hair back to sit and, and listen to him play it. And I was a little bit surprised when he didn't win. That was Aaron Ogin. Aaron is the uh, Aaron Ogin is the uh, composer of the of the work. I forget who was actually uh, competing with the work, but 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 shout out to um, Aaron. Yeah, you, you don't see too many uh, really fun uh, bass concertos. Is Radar okay here? You okay, Radar? Radar's okay. Uh, see, Radar's upset too about <laughs> what I have to talk. So um, so this year, so and 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 as as you saw. There are there is a lot of diversity there. There are lots of black folks, lots of brown folks, lots of folks at the conference, a lot of really important conversation happening. Uh, Well, this past uh, year, it was announced about a week ago, um, the Sphinx finalists for 2021 and none of them are black. So considering the experience you have with Sphinx, again, the competition and the conference um, just one year, is it surprising to you? Is that something that. Um, seems funny to you. Seems I do remember. Whatever. I do. What's your reaction? I do remember seeing the finalists. I think it was that you posted it on mm-hmm. one of the social media platforms. But and I remember looking at it and going, mm, "Is that Sphinx?" One. But th- here, let me let me let me say that as a person who attended his first Sphinx conference just last year. To me, it seemed very black-centric. But I also know from talking to other people there at the conference that it seems like there's been a transition or a... um, A lightening? (laughs) I wasn't going to say say (laughs) exactly that, but... Um, you know what I'm getting at. Right. That, okay, so I think perspective is what we really need to pay attention to here because somebody like myself on the outside looking in, mm-hmm. it looked very black-centric. Right. But I understand that somebody who has gone to many of them probably sees it differently, especially with the finalists that we see now, correct? First and foremost, congratulations to all the finalists. I know it can't be a comfortable feeling to have worked so hard and to make it to the finals of something. And now you're at the middle of this controversy, but let's just face it. How did I describe this opus of Triloquy? I said uh, the podcast that celebrates equitable diversity. So Sphinx is an organization that, if you don't know, celebrates uh, the power of diversity in classical music and in orchestral music. When we talk about that word diversity, it's easy for black folks to fall through the cracks. Even when we use the uh, term BIPOC, I'm sure you've seen um, that phrase. I think we're forgetting the levels of privilege and the intersections of privilege. We talk about the intersections of marginalization a lot. We don't talk about the intersections of privilege. Something that I feel like we don't feel completely comfortable talking about when we talk about so-called diversity in classical music and black and brown people is that many of the people from Spanish-speaking countries, Caribbean countries, uh, Central and South American-speaking countries, in those places, they benefit from certain privileges for presenting as white in those in those places. If mm. you go to Brazil, if you go to Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, you're going to see black people. That you, I'm, I'm sure you have some experience. In, um, you said you've been to Brazil or South America or somewhere. And I've been to Costa Rica and Belize. Did you see black people there? Yes. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. We don't see those black people in the Sphinx competition. And I think what that speaks to is how blackness 
really has to be centered when we're talking about equity and diversity. It's not equitable, in my opinion, for a diverse um, initiative to involve no black people. Um, I was very disappointed to see that. I understand that there may be things behind the scenes that I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sure things will come to light, but I was very upset to see that there are no black people who are going to get that platform um, and win that prize this year with an organization that supports and celebrates diversity. Now, I'm going to also say this. I value the space that Alpha Dworkin maintains, the space that Aaron Dworkin created, because before everybody got used to Zoom and video calls, that was virtually the only time. I mm-hmm. talked to so many people. The only time I saw Katie and Delaney, the only time I talked to Titus, you know, shout out to all the other um, black musicians out there. So I respect that space. I don't want Sphinx to go away. I want there to be more intention behind understanding the equity of diversity. If we're pulling in people that have privileges in their own countries and are able to make it here somehow and to and to reap those benefits from black folks who are already here whose ancestors built the infrastructure for all of this to work and 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 we can't participate in that what's the point of the initiative that Mm. that's 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 how i feel no shade all respect to everybody over there at sphinx but i think this is unacceptable i'm also going to say this it's a lot for me on my platform here to put forward my frustration with Sphinx. It's not lost on me that there are a lot of people who are just unwilling to speak against such a large and important organization publicly. Mm. Please, if I'm going to put my neck out here and talk about how disappointed I am with the organization, I need y'all to back me up. I need to not be the only one saying these things. I need to not be the only one writing emails or letters or or being upset about things. So it's a two-lane road. Sphinx, I hope that you're thinking about this moment, what it means, and how you can practice more equity in your diversity initiatives and for the critics, for the private critics, I hope that you can figure out a way to speak up with me and everyone else speaking up so that we can actually make a difference so that we can change some things. Have any of the finalists, any of the uh, people pictured there spoken up at this point? I haven't looked. And and as I said, I would hate to be, I, I put myself in their shoes. I, yeah, I, I would yeah. hate to be there. That's I've won thinking. this thing. I've, I've reached, you know, this, this pinnacle, but it, it, it's, it's something that ha- that has to be addressed mm-hmm. and, and it's not ugly. You know, racism is not pretty. And I'm not saying anyone was racist. I'm saying we're seeing the manifestations of, of racist, and inequitable structures when such an important institution in classical, excuse me, an important institution in classical music this year is not really going to benefit anybody black. I I think that's just something that has to be dealt with. I'm sorry. Um, And then I have one more little triloquy here. Um, So, and, and, and this is a rough one for me. So because it hits close to home. So there's, IDRS, the International Society, the International Double Read Society, IDRS. From that came IDRD, International Double Read Discussions. So in this group, in in this structure, um, it's double read players from all around the world talking about experiences here, experiences there, what pieces they like, what pieces they don't like. Well, last week, a bassoonist named... Uh, Joey, and I, I know them as Joey. I won't, I won't 
put their full government out there just in case they don't want. But Joey posted um, an article, uh, a piece about their issues with being non-binary, with being black, um, body discrimination, all of that inside of performing in new music spaces. Mm. And that was not welcomed on um, the International Double Read discussion um, pages and, um, and, and outlets. After lots of discussions and back and forths and, and throwing rocks and whatever, the whole page is down. The, 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 whole, the whole thing really? is done. Um, and where, the, where was the page? On, uh, on Facebook. Oh, okay. And the okay. critique is that instead of addressing, last week when we were talking about that uh, public radio coalition, instead of making amends, they were just like, fine, we'll just, we'll just lock the doors. No one, no one can come in now. I showed you a video of Joey uh, performing some of their music mm-hmm. um, in, in that really incredible um, Afrocentric, Black-centered, contemporary music sort of way. When you see uh, the aesthetic that Joey is trying to put out, is that something that you would push to the side? Is not dealing with double reads, the the world of, of double reads. The piece that you played for me? Yeah. No. Obviously. No. He, d- despite the fact that it's contemporary, um, un- untraditional, however you want to define that, that musical aesthetic belongs in the conversation of bassoon and, and double read. That is an example of everything they have studied, played, practiced, and sweat over up to that moment. So how can and we it's ab- dense. So how can we actually and authentically value the art without valuing the artist? I think that's what I want more people to understand. The argument was that this is a, a double read thing, and let's even expand this outside of bassoons and oboes up specifically. This is a music space. We aren't here to be political. Let's just keep things nice. Da 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 blah blah blah. That has to go away. As we expand art, as we expand aesthetic, we have to expand what we allow in the space as far as sharing authentic perspective. One thing that I know, I know you're not on Facebook now, Scott, but I know one thing you used to speak to is not feeling like anybody cares to hear about your shit. And when we see things like this, I think we're promoting these toxic spaces in which folks with real um, experience, I won't say issues, but real experiences that impact the art, they can't share it because... Quite frankly, Somebody's going to throw a the, rock. The, the white people in charge mm. feel uncomfortable with it. It triggers some kind of guilt or some sort of anger or or whatever. Uh, it's not pretty. It's not what we expect. This isn't what classical music is, etc., etc. So to the moderators over there at IDRD, I'm embarrassed for you. I am sorry that you can't understand how big of a problem it is for you to try to silence the perspective of folks like Joey. I'll, I'll put a link uh, to uh, the performance that I'm talking about from them uh, in the description. Incredible bassoonist that I want to make sure everyone um, has uh, has their eyes um, and ears on. Listen, if you ever uh, have an issue, uh, you know, my, my DMs are always fiery, but if you ever feel like you have an issue, something you want to get off your chest, you want to share a perspective with me privately, publicly, just just reach out. This is this is the space, Scott. You know what I'm so proud of with Triloquy. There are so many, um, bl- how can I say, exclusively black initiatives happening, mm-hmm. which I affirm and celebrate and champion. Because as we've discussed, you know, uh, in agnosium on this show, we need our own spaces because we have the material that shows that we are not safe in other spaces. So I affirm that and. 
I celebrate Triloquy for celebrating accompliceship, not allyship, but what it means to be an accomplice and how that can happen. I value Triloquy. You know, we, we've been using that phrase, equitable diversity. I feel like we cover a lot of bases here, mm-hmm. all while centering blackness. I feel like I'm centering blackness in in this while being diverse. And that's why I I use that phrase, equitable diversity. Do you think we're hitting a pretty good balance here as far as diversity, centering blackness and and everything else? I don't know of anybody who's doing anything quite like we do. (laughs) 